Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Ted Chang's fiction has won four Hugo, four Nebula, and four Locus Awards, and has been featured in the Best American Short Stories. His debut collection, Stories of Your Life and Others, has been translated into 21 languages. He was born in Port Jefferson, New York, and currently lives near Seattle, Washington. Please give Ted Chang a warm skylight welcome. Thanks for coming out. Uh, so I'm going to try and do a, uh, give a talk with a slide presentation. So hopefully this will all work out. Okay, so uh, a lot of people say that uh, the idea of time travel was invented by H.G. Wells in his novel, The Time Machine. And they note that it's curious that prior to the publication of that novel, no one ever wondered about the possibility of traveling through time. Uh, after all, it's very common for us to wish that we could revisit a moment in our past and do things differently. So these people say that it's really odd that no one ever wrote about having that wish come true before 1895. Well, uh, I have a somewhat different take on it. I would like to suggest that Wells's The Time Machine is not actually the first interesting time travel story. I would also like to suggest that time travel stories are just a modern incarnation of a very old kind of story. And once we understand that, we can better appreciate what time travel stories are really about. So. Let's start with uh, Greek mythology. It is true that there are no time machines in ancient mythology, but there are stories about a kind of time travel, and those are stories about prophecies. Prophecies can be seen as a form of time travel, except that it is information that is traveling back in time instead of a person. We don't immediately think of prophecy stories as being time travel stories, but that's because they differ in the perspective they show us. Stories about prophecies give us the perspective of the person who's receiving the information, while time travel stories usually focus on the perspective of the person who's doing the traveling or sending the information. But really, they are just two sides of the same coin. The important thing to note is that in Greek mythology, prophecies never help anyone avoid a terrible outcome. Take the myth of Oedipus. When Oedipus is born, it's prophesied that he will kill his father and marry his mother. So his parents have the infant abandoned on the side of a mountain to die of exposure. When a shepherd finds him and brings him to the city of Corinth, uh, uh, he, there he is adopted by the king. Uh, later, when Oedipus becomes an adult, he consults an oracle to learn more about himself, and he himself learns that he is destined to kill his father and marry his mother. To prevent that from happening, he mo moves away from Corinth and unwittingly winds up back in the city of Thebes, where, unbeknownst to him, he was originally from. 
He gets into an argument with a stranger and kills him, and then marries the Queen of Thebes. Many years later, he discovers that the stranger was actually his father, and the queen is actually his mother. The queen kills herself, and Oedipus pokes out both of his own eyes. Stories about prophecies are found in most every system of mythology all over the world. Characters often take steps to avoid these prophecies from coming to pass, but they never succeed. In fact, their actions are often precisely what enables the prophecy to come true. This remains a trope in books, movies, and television even today. When an oracle makes a prophecy, you can usually expect that it will come true. And this is what makes a prophecy different from an educated guess made by a character. If you read a story in which a military commander makes a plan and then has to revise it because the enemy surprised him, you would not consider that a failed prophecy. That just reflects the limitations of planning. Prophecies in fiction are a different beast because they always wind up coming true. And the only way to make sense of that is to see them as the result of information traveling backward in time. So when you look at them this way, you see that a certain type of time travel story has been around for a very long time. Now, the first example of what I consider a modern time travel story appears in 1843. That is Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Ebenezer Scrooge is shown the future by the ghosts of Christmas yet to come, and he learns that he dies alone, that his servants steal his possessions once he's dead, that no one attends his funeral, and no one has a good word to say about him. He's horrified by this, and he asks the ghost, are these the shadows of the things that will be, or are they shadows of things that may be? What Scrooge is asking is, do I have free will? He doesn't want the future he has witnessed to come to pass, and so he, when he returns to the present, he resolves to change his ways and become a better person. Scrooge has received a prophecy, he takes steps to keep it from coming true, and, this is the crucial part, he is successful. I believe this is the first time this happens anywhere in literature. And this is why I think of A Christmas Carol as the first real time travel story. Because Scrooge was able to use information from the future to prevent that future from coming to pass. This is also why I think H.G. Wells' The Time Machine is not so interesting. Not only does it come 50 years after A Christmas Carol, but it doesn't really engage with the possibility of changing the past or future at all. The time traveler is an entirely passive observer. In the novel, the time traveler befriends a woman from the future named Weena, but she is later killed in a forest fire. It never occurs to the time traveler that he could use his time machine to save her. Nor does the time traveler, upon returning to Victorian England, try to do anything to prevent the future that he has seen from coming to pass. The time machine is notable for proposing the idea that society might devolve, but it, it completely ignores the potential of time travel. So, what happens between Oedipus Rex and A Christmas Carol? I think the difference is that in the modern world, the majority of people believe in, that it, sorry, the difference is that in the ancient world, the majority of people believed in fate, while in the modern world, the majority of people believe in free will. The ancient Greeks would not have been receptive to A Christmas Carol because it wouldn't have been aligned with how they understood the universe to work. It's only when the idea of free will is widely accepted that a story like A Christmas Carol becomes possible. This helps us to understand the shift from prophecy stories to time travel stories. If you believe in fate, if you believe that you have a destiny that you won't be able to escape, then it makes perfect sense that there aren't time travel stories as we typically envision them today. 
Because if you don't think you can change the future, it certainly would not occur to you that you might be able to change the past. However, once you believe that you can act on prophecy to avoid an undesirable future, then it's possible to contemplate the idea that maybe the life you're currently living isn't the only possibility available to you. Belief in free will is what makes modern time travel stories, stories about changing the past, comprehensible. I'm going to use these two stories, Oedipus and A Christmas Carol, as my models for two categories of time travel stories. The first category is stories in which it's not possible to change the past. This corresponds to the prophecy being fulfilled because your fate is unavoidable. The second category is stories in which it is possible to change the past. This corresponds to the prophecy being averted because you have free will. So for examples of these two categories, uh, I'm going to look at some popular time travel movies. And we will start with the classic time travel movie, Back to the Future. In the beginning of the movie, Marty McFly's family does not have very good prospects. His dad is constantly bullied, his mom is an alcoholic, and his siblings have menial jobs. At the dinner table, his mom tells a story of her first kiss with his dad, and she says, at that moment, I knew I was going to spend the rest of my life with him. And given the circumstances, that line serves as a prophecy of a very grim future. <laughs> By the end of the movie, due to Marty's intervention in the past, his family's situation has changed dramatically. His father is confident, his mother is happy, his siblings are upwardly mobile. Their future is bright. So this movie is a modern version of A Christmas Carol. The same pattern applies to the two sequels, Back to the Future 2 and 3, which form two halves of one long story. In this story, what needs changing isn't Marty's family, but Marty himself. In Back to the Future 2, we see that Marty's life in the future has been ruined because of a personality flaw. He acts reckless recklessly whenever someone calls him a chicken. He has ruined his hand in a car accident after a friend dared him to race and lost the ability to play guitar as a result. Then he loses his job after a coworker dares him to engage in illegal activity. But by the end of Back to the Future 3, Marty has learned better. He has changed his ways. He is mature enough to ignore people who call him a chicken, and the future where he lost his job is erased. His future isn't written yet. Like Ebenezer Scrooge, he has become a better man. By comparison, the first Terminator film suggests that it is not possible to change history. Sarah Connor learns that humans and machines are at war in the future. And while Skynet is trying to change history by John Connor, the movie ends with a strong suggestion that the war between humans and machines is inevitable. At the end of the movie, a character says, there's a storm coming. And Sarah Connor replies, I know. Interestingly, Terminator 2 is a sequel that reverses the message of the first film. The movie again starts with a bleak vision of the future, but the rest of the film is a refusal of that vision. Sarah Connor is reminded that there is no fate but what we make, and by the end of the film, the war with the machines has been avoided. The future is an open road that could lead anywhere. On the other hand, we have 12 Monkeys, another film that says it is not possible to change history. In the film, James Cole is sent back in time from a future where a plague has ravaged the world. It is repeatedly said that he cannot change the past. All he can do is gather information. 
But the fixed nature of history is reinforced on a more personal level, too. At the beginning of the film, James Cole describes a childhood memory when he saw a man being shot in an airport. At the end of the film, it turns out that he himself is the man who gets shot. By traveling back in time, he's become part of the events that he witnessed. Finally, I'm going to talk about uh, the time travel film Looper. Uh, this film is not quite as well known as the previous ones, so I'm going to talk about it in uh, more detail. Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Bruce Willis play the younger and older versions of the same character named Joe. Joe is an assassin, and he explicitly attributes this to the fact that he grew up without a mother and spent most of his life in the criminal underworld. In the future, the older Joe's wife is murdered by a vicious crime lord, so old Joe travels back in time in an attempt to kill the crime lord as a child and keep his wife's murder from happening. Young Joe meets the child and his mother, who is trying to raise the child to be a good person. Young Joe realizes that old Joe's actions are creating a causal loop. When old Joe shoots the child's mother, he leaves the child an orphan. That is what causes the child to grow up to become a, a crime lord. As a crime lord, he orders the death of, Joe's of old Joe's wife, which is what motivates old Joe to go back in time. And the finale of the film is when young Joe realizes this. He says, then I saw it. I saw a mom who would die for her son, a man who would kill for his wife, a boy angry and alone, laid out in front of him the bad path. I saw it, and the path was a circle, round and round. So I changed it. Young Joe makes a decision to stop this from happening. He commits suicide, causing old Joe to disappear, breaking the loop. At a metaphorical level, what young Joe is talking about is the cycle of intergenerational trauma and how violence begets violence. Looper is a movie about how people who were victims of violence as children grow up to become adults who inflict violence on others, creating a self-perpetuating cycle. When young Joe decides to kill himself, what he is doing is demonstrating that it is possible to stop this cycle. It is possible for a person to choose not to repeat this pattern. Note that the majority of modern time travel stories assume that it is possible to change the past. We still see some stories in which it is not, but they are definitely in the minority now. Nowadays, when we talk about time travel, we automatically start thinking about changing the past. That's because we don't believe in fate anymore. We believe in free will. Now, I'm going to talk a bit about how physicists believe time travel might actually work. Movies and television have encouraged us to think of time machines as vehicles that you ride in, or else some kind of teleporter that beams you to a different era. But when physicists speculate about building a time machine, they imagine something very different. And I think that the form of time machine that they envision is very interesting, especially when it comes to the question of free will. The specific time machine that I'm going to describe to you was proposed by the physicist Kip Thorne. And uh, there are a couple concepts you need to understand first. The first one is time dilation. If you've read any popular accounts of Einstein's theory of relativity, or uh, you've probably encountered the idea of time dilation, or maybe you saw the movie Interstellar. 
The basic idea is this. So bo suppose Bob stays on Earth while Alice pilots a spaceship at nearly the speed of light until she reaches a star that is 10 light years away. When she is done with her visit, she again get, uh, accelerates her spaceship to nearly the speed of light and pilots it back home. Because of time dilation, she experiences the entire round trip as only taking one year. But when she returns to Earth, she finds that 20 years have passed and Bob has aged far more than she has. This is one of the counterintuitive aspects of relativity, but it has been very well documented by physicists. Radioactive particles decay more slowly when they are traveling at high velocities. Atomic clocks need to be recalibrated when they're in motion. So we can say with certainty that time does indeed slow down for an object that is moving near the speed of light. The second concept that you need to understand is that of wormholes. This is something that you see a lot in movies and television. The idea is that it is possible to create a passage that connects two points in space. And that by traveling through that passage, you'd be able to get from one point to the other without having to cross the intervening space. What movies and television get wrong is that you can't open or close a wormhole, and you certainly cannot do it remotely. Physicists believe there may be naturally occurring wormholes that are microscopic in size, so the distance between the two mouths is less than the width of a proton. They speculate that it might be possible to find one of these naturally occurring wormholes and artificially enlarge the mouths so that microscopic objects could travel through. Then you could physically separate the two mouths until they are far apart. For example, imagine that Bob keeps one mouth of the wormhole in a laboratory, while Alice mounts the other mouth in a spaceship. Then, whenever Alice flies a spaceship, Bob can go there instantly just by using the wormhole. For example, suppose the spaceship lands in London. Bob can step through the mouth in the laboratory and out of the mouth in the spaceship. He can descend the ramp to visit London. And when he's done, he'll just step back through the mouth in the spaceship and instantly come home. One thing to keep in mind is that the wormhole does not open or close. It is always open. Bob could be standing in the lab and physically hold hands with Alice the whole time that she's flying the spaceship around. You'll see why that's important in a minute. So now let's combine the idea of wormholes with time dilation. We have one mouth of the wormhole in the lab and the other in a spaceship. And now Alice flies it at nearly the speed of light and travels to a star that's 10 light years away. Once again, when she's done with her journey, she accelerates her spaceship to nearly the speed of light and pilots it back to Earth. As before, the whole journey takes 20 years, but because of time dilation, Alice experiences the round trip as taking only one year. And since the wormhole is open the whole time, Bob can watch the journey as it happens, so it only takes one year for Bob too. So Alice lands on the lawn in front of the laboratory and sees a crowd celebrating her return. And from his position in the lab, Bob can look through the wormhole and see that celebration. However, if Bob looks out the front window of the lab, he doesn't see any celebration taking place. The front lawn is empty because the round trip journey takes 20 years and only one year has passed on Earth. It will be another 19 years before the spaceship gets back. 
But if Bob enters the mouth of the wormhole that's in the lab, he'll step out of the mouth of the wormhole that's on the ship, and from there, he can see the welcome home celebration that has been prepared for Alice. We have created a time machine that connects two points in time 19 years apart. When you step through the wormhole from the lab to the spaceship, you travel 19 years into the future. The wormhole makes it possible to experience time dilation without having to travel yourself. And remember, the wormhole works both ways, which means that it's possible to travel in the other direction too. Anyone who's in the crowd celebrating Alice's return can climb aboard the spaceship and step through the wormhole from there. Then they will arrive in the laboratory 19 years in their past. If they walk out of the laboratory's front door, they will see an empty lawn too. In fact, Bob's older self might be one of those people who came to celebrate Alice's return. He could come through the wormhole, travel back in time 19 years, and actually meet his younger self. So one of the cool things about this form of time travel is that it resolves certain questions that come up when you imagine a time machine as a vehicle or a, trans or a teleporter. For example, how do you take into account the motion of the Earth when time traveling? With this type of time machine, you, you can only travel between the mouths of the wormhole. Wherever the mouth is, is where you come out. So that problem is handled automatically. Another question that is often asked is, if time travel is possible, why haven't we already been visited by travelers from the future? The answer is, you have to build the time machine before you can be visited by time travelers. Until you've put a wormhole onto Alice's spaceship and sent it on its journey at near light speed, you can't be visited by any time travelers. The earliest date that any time traveler can, uh, can journey back to is a year after Alice's ship takes off. That points to something else about this time machine. The first experience you can have with this time machine is not traveling back into your own past. Instead, your first experience is either traveling into your future or welcoming a visitor from the future. So in a way, using this time machine is like getting a prophecy. Either you will be able to see your future self like Ebenezer Scrooge, or you will meet someone who can tell you what's going to happen to you, like Oedipus consulting the oracle. So then the next question is, can you change your fate? Whatever you learn about your future, is it possible for you to avoid that? In the scenario we just saw, Bob sees that his older self came to welcome Alice back from her 20-year journey in space. So now Bob knows at least one thing about his future. Can Bob decide to change that? Can Bob resolve not to be there when Alice gets back from space? Intuitively, it seems like he ought to be able to, but from a physics perspective, there is a problem. The time machine was built, in a matter of speaking, using time dilation. And time dilation doesn't take you to a possible future. It takes you to the actual future. When Alice came back from her voyage at near the speed of light, she returned to the one and only Earth. So what Bob sees through the wormhole is not one possible outcome. It is what will definitely happen to him. To use the lang language of Ebenezer Scrooge, he is seeing things that will be, not things that may be. That suggests that there is no way for him to skip the welcome home celebration. In terms of Einstein's relativity, this actually makes sense because one of the unexpected consequences of relativity is that events in the future have the same status as events in the past. 
Normally, it's not possible to learn about those events before they happen, so it doesn't really matter. It's only when you build a time machine that you can learn about those events in advance. And the more you think about this, the weirder it gets. Suppose Bob keeps a diary in which he writes down everything that happened every day. That means Bob's older self has a detailed record of what happened to him over the last 19 years. Suppose old Bob gives young Bob that diary. Now young Bob knows what's going to happen every single day for the next 19 years. What about the days where something bad happens, like Bob breaks his leg skiing? Does he have to go skiing even though he, know he knows he's going to break his leg? Also, old Bob presumably remembers getting the diary from himself 19 years ago. So does that mean by making use of this time machine, Bob has removed the element of surprise from his life? These are vexing questions, but it turns out that quantum mechanics may come to the rescue. Not because quantum mechanics implies that there are multiple possible futures, but because quantum mechanics might make it impossible to build this time machine in the first place. Uh, the time machine I've described ought to work according to Einstein's relativity, but when physicists try to analyze it in terms of quantum mechanics, they discover problems, and those problems might prevent us from manipulating the mouths of the wormhole in a way that we would need in order to make a time machine. And as a side note, uh, I'll just mention that reconciling general relativity and quantum mechanics is one of the big unsolved problems in physics. Many years ago, the physicist Stephen Hawking proposed the idea of the chronology protection conjecture, which was the idea that the laws of physics always conspire to prevent time machines from being built. So far, it looks like he might be correct, and maybe that's a good thing. It's not because I'm worried that if we build a time machine, someone will create a paradox that would destroy the space-time continuum. It's because I'm not sure that we ever want to be in the position of Bob reading his older self's diary. Now, this might make it sound like modern physics is proving that the ancients were right all along and that your fate is inevitable, no matter what you do. But that is not actually the case. Physics suggests that determinism is true, but determinism is not the same thing as fatalism. People often mistake one for the other, but these are two very different concepts. Fatalism is the idea that a specific outcome is unavoidable no matter what actions you take. It means that the choices you make don't matter. By contrast, determinism is the idea that every event is caused by preceding events. It means that the choices you make do matter. Your choices have causes, but they also have effects. The actions you take are not inconsequential. The future is a product of your decisions. I personally like it when science fiction is scientifically accurate, but science fiction can be valuable even when it is not. Time travel is almost certainly impossible in reality, but that doesn't mean that stories about time travel aren't worth telling. They can still be useful and important because of the message they carry. In ancient times, stories about prophecies, like Oedipus Rex, told people that they were prisoners of fate. Modern time travel stories are telling you that you are not. Like Ebenezer Scrooge or Marty McFly, you can become a better person. Like Sarah Connor, you do not have to accept a prediction of doom. Like Joe in Looper, you can stop the cycle of violence. We don't need to actually be able to travel in time to take a lesson from these stories. 
Stories about changing the past are a way to remind us that we have the power to change our lives. Time travel is a metaphor for the freedom that we already possess. Thank you. So, um, questions? <laughs> yes? Uh, I have seen it, yes. Uh, oh, he was asking about uh, the, the movie Primer by uh, Shane Carruth. Um, uh, I like Primer a lot. Uh, it is a really, you know, it is a really interesting movie. I, um, uh, I think the movie is actually, uh, unclear. Uh, I think that, um, yeah, I think it, it, it is, it is, uh, the, the movie is sort of, uh, ambiguous in terms of what it is actually saying about uh, changing the past. There, I think there are, certain, there are inconsistencies in the film, uh, which, you know, uh, normally, like in most time travel films, I don't mind that there are inconsistencies because that's just sort of the nature of them. Uh, but, you know, Primer, uh, Primer is clearly a film that is inviting close inspection. And, and yet, when I think, I think that if you actually inspect it closely, you know, problems emerge. Um, so, uh, but you know, this is not, this is not, you know, like I said, I, I, I like Primer a lot. I think it is very interesting and people, if you have not seen it, you should go, you should go see it. Um, but yeah, I am not, I, uh, I'm not, I'm not clear on what, uh, you know, on how the universe actually works in, in Primer because I think that it is sort of inconsistent uh, on, on, on that question. Yes. Um, the question was, okay. Uh, the, the question was, do I struggle with being an optimist? Um, and, uh, uh, yes, yes I do. I, uh, um, uh, I think that um, I think yeah, but uh, my probably my natural inclination is toward pessimism, um, and uh, uh, I have to, I have to I have to really work at it. I um, I'm I, I guess you know in a lot of ways I am sort of engaged in a constant ongoing effort to um, uh, to fight my 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 natural inclination to, toward pessimism uh, yeah because yeah you know, I, I can I, I can fall into pessimism I think very easily and um, but I you know I don't I don't I guess uh, yeah I don't want to be a pessimist uh, and uh, so I try to, uh, 
yeah, I guess yeah, I try to make the case for um, for you know having hope, um, and I guess you know. Uh, I, I guess you know I'm maybe making the case to myself as much as to anyone else. Uh, so yeah, I do believe in you know optimism, but yeah, it's not. Uh, I can't. I, I can't say that it's easy. Yes. Um, well, I guess, uh, you know, I think, you know, they are, I think, yes, you know, the sprint and marathon comparison, I think, is a, is a reasonable one. Um, you know, the, the industry is definitely geared toward novels, and not just the industry, but, you know, the, uh, our, our culture is sort of, uh, puts... A lot of emphasis on novels, but um, but I guess yeah, I, I I think you know we you know we don't need to think of novels as the real thing and you know short stories as the warm up in the same way that we don't think of marathons as the real event and sprinters are just sort of working their way up to that. Um, uh, I uh, uh, so you know in that in that respect, I guess I would like it if the uh, if the industry and you know uh, the literary establishment you know, were uh, viewed them as you know really distinct events in the same way that you know uh, uh, the Olympics does you know sprinting and marathons, but you know I you know in in this analogy I'm definitely uh, a sprinter. I um, I'm not opposed to novels, and I you know if I got an idea which I thought. Would be best treated at novel length. I would try writing a novel, but I um, I think that the ideas I get are ones that are best treated at shorter length. At least I know how to deal with them, you know, at, at shorter lengths. So uh, for the time being, I'm you know perfectly content to stick with writing shorter works. Um, I, I think it varies. Uh, there, there, there have been stories where I, you know, I just uh, it was I knew something about, say, physics beforehand, and that was what uh, prompted me to write the story. Uh, but there are other stories where I did have to do research on the way. Um, I only before I started writing Story of Your Life. I I was interested in linguistics, but I didn't know a lot of linguistics, so I had to 
I had to do a, a lot of reading in linguistics to write that story. But um, uh, the other, like a lot of other stories, uh, I guess I, uh, I have enough of, of, I know enough about the subject that uh, I can, or at least the, you know, the idea for the story comes without me having to do more research. Uh, so yeah, I guess it, it depends on the subject. Yes. Um, okay, so um, with regard to uh, yeah, do they uh, you know what is it like to you know try and write at a day job and then write fiction? Uh, yes, I actually was n I was actually not good at that. Um, <laughs> so like so when I for a lo for a long time I had a a regular I was a regular full time employee as a technical writer and I. I had a lot of trouble writing fiction. And then I switched to, I, I made the decision to switch to freelance um, and uh, I would work a contract for like say six months and then I would take six months off and try and write fiction. And that was what enabled me to write, uh, to actually get fiction writing done. Um, I was, because yeah, I was not, I was not good at um, doing them both. Uh, I, I could not come home after a day of technical writing and then write fiction in the evening. Um, you know, some people are capable of doing that. Uh, Gene Wolfe uh, famously, you know, uh, did you know, a lot of his best work while uh, maintaining a, a full-time job. But yeah, I, I, I myself could not, and so I had to do the switch on and switch on and off in order to uh, get any uh, fiction writing really uh, to make any headway on fiction writing. Um, with regard to the question of you know is there uh, um, like do is there any connection between you know my fiction writing and my uh, my work as a technical writer? I, you know I don't think that there is any. Um, I don't think there's a direct connection, but I, I, did, I did become aware that, I think one of the things that, um, one of the things that led me to become a technical writer was the fact that I was really interested in, um, uh, in good explanations. Um, I, I, I think that a really uh, a really clear explanation um, can be not just useful but beautiful, and I am very so. I am, I guess, I'm very interested in the idea of like conveying a concept clearly, and I think that that interest is visible in my fiction writing, and so that that interest 
is what you know led me to become a, a technical writer. So, so I think that you know there is that there is that connection between the two. But uh, you know, uh, it has more to do with you know like why you know how I got into both, not so much you know a connection after I did both. Um, it's not exactly, I, I wouldn't say it's exactly either of those. Um, so obviously I am not a prolific writer. I, you know, um, I, I don't get a lot of ideas for stories. Um, and I am reliant on sort of inspiration hitting me, inspiration coming to me. Uh, so uh so in that sense you know uh yeah i'm not able to you know force myself to write stories um but i guess i am i guess fairly diligent about you know um sitting uh at a at a desk and thinking about thinking about story ideas Thinking about um, speculations, uh, uh, looking for uh, just I guess looking for for things that I find interesting. Uh, so uh, so yeah, I'm not I'm not I'm not I'm not uh, reliably cranking out the words every day, but I'm not spelling the roses uh, either. Yes. Um, I guess probably uh, my advice would be um, you you have you have to be able to um, you have to be able to withstand rejection you have to be able to um, uh, get past the fact like yeah well I mean uh, you have to get used to the fact that like. You will write a lot of bad stories. You will be unhappy with your work, um, and and then you will also have people telling you, "Yeah, not good, not good." <laughs> and um, uh, and you have you have to be able to uh, uh, get past that. That and you know and and you know I'm not going to claim that it's easy, 
Um, uh, but I think I, uh, you know, I, one of the one of the I think one of the key things about um, becoming a fiction writer is uh, persistence. Uh, is that um, you have to just um, keep going in the face of all the sort of uh, discouragement that uh, you know some some internal and some external, but uh, um, you know that that is that is one of the things that you have to I think push push past. The other I guess the other. Um, and I'll, you know, so as to not uh, leave you with that, such a really downbeat piece of advice. Um, I'm gonna, so the, the, the other, like the sort of, uh, one, of the, one of the pieces of advice that I always repeat when I uh, talk to uh, aspiring writers is, um, there's a there's a there's a quote from the the author uh, Annie Dillard, um, uh, where she says, uh, "There's something you find interesting for a reason hard to explain. Uh, it is hard to explain because you have never read it on any page. There you begin. You were made and set here to give voice to your own astonishment. So." Uh, what I take that to mean is that you know there is something that um, there there's there's something that you find fascinating, and um, there's stories that uh, you know the, the stories that you write will be uh, you explaining to other people why this thing is fascinating. They you know no they don't know it's fascinating yet. They're waiting for you to tell them what is fascinating about it. There are stories out there that will not, they will not get written unless you write them. And so, uh, so you have to uh, have faith that yeah, you have a, you have a unique perspective. You are are, uh, and your unique perspective is what you offer the world. And you know, figuring out the things that you find really interesting and figuring out how to make other people recognize that they're interesting. That is, that is the job of a writer. So um, that, that's, that's, uh, uh, that I think is you know, the other piece of advice I'd give. Um, okay, uh, so uh, so yes, the, the, this this talk does sort of lead into uh, Merchant and Alchemist Gate, and um, uh, my choice of a medieval uh, of uh, medieval Cairo and medieval Baghdad for the setting has to do with um, the idea that I, so I wanted to write a story about 
uh, about time travel in which you know, you could not change the past, but it was not it was not a tragedy that you couldn't change the past because that's that's often the way that uh, time travel stories uh, go when it, they they depict the impossibility of changing the past as a tragedy. And I wanted to write a story where it wasn't. And um, it occurred to me that um, uh, an Islamic setting might be might be good because um, because accepting one's fate is one of the pillars of Islam. Uh, and uh, I also thought that um, the Arabian Nights, they you know the Arabian Nights they have a uh, a stories nested within stories structure that's very common you know and I thought that that might work well with um, a time travel story because time travel stories often have this recursive quality to them uh, so I thought so it it seemed like that was an interesting possibility and um, uh, yeah so then I guess I started I started imagining what a time travel story would look like if if there had been one included in, in the Arabian Nights in the in the Thousand and One Nights. Yes. Um. I don't. I don't. I don't get inspiration from music. Um, I, uh, I. So yeah, I don't have any. I, uh, music doesn't work for me in that way. Um, but you know, I. I do. You know, I, I definitely do get inspiration from reading other. Uh, uh, I guess both reading both fiction and nonfiction. Um, but cer certainly, you know. Uh, you know there are writers that uh, uh, that leave me in awe. Um, it is uh, it is definitely the case that you know I think you know the older you get the and the more that you read you know it becomes harder and harder to find authors who who do that. But um, but you know. There, there are definitely still, you know, I still definitely, you know, absolutely do read things which, um, uh, which really impress me and make me think about uh, um, the power of fiction. So, um, well, okay, so uh, I, I guess I, I always have to, I, uh, I always feel like I always have to mention the author uh, John Crowley. Um, he was someone who, when um, when I was in college, I first encountered him when I was in college. Um, he sort of changed my uh, my ideas of what science fiction could be, and um, and most of what he writes is not really science fiction. But um, he he did write some. He has written some stuff which is uh, science fiction, and uh, and. Yeah, he totally uh, changed my perspective, and um, I, I guess, you know, I sort of live in 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 awe of John Crowley's sentences. 
I, um, uh, I know that you know, I will never write sentences uh, the way John Carley writes sentences, but um, uh, he, uh, he has, a, an, I think, a, just this, an amazing way with words. You know, uh, he has a, an amazing prose voice. Um, and so, yeah, uh, I continue to just, you know, uh, be, uh, I, I guess, yeah, I do, I remain in awe of, of his work. Um, well, uh, I guess the book that, the book of his that uh, really opened, changed, changed my view of uh, science fiction when I was in college was uh, Engine Summer, which is uh, an early uh, short novel of his. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, his most recent novel is uh, called Ka. Uh, it's a novel from the point of view of a crow. And um, uh, and I, recomm I, I, I definitely uh, recommend it. You should, you should check it out. Yes. Um, actually, uh, I wrote that before. I wrote that before that that came out. Um, uh, so yeah, it, uh, but you know, it it, it, def it definitely you know when when that when that when that actually uh, came when that came to light, you know, it definitely did sort of you know seem very much in you know confirmation of uh, you know the things I'd been. Writing about, um, uh, I guess, I, I guess I wrote that sort of in response to. There, I, I, I had read a, a couple things uh, last year. People t writing, nonfiction writers writing about the future, and they talked about how um, there would be this uh, this widening gap. Uh, I mean, there's widening gap between rich and poor, but also that there'd be it would become a uh, genetic difference because the wealthy would have genetically would be genetically engineered, and thus they would be the only ones who'd be able to to actually get jobs because they would be the only ones smart enough to do you know to do paying work, and regular humans would not be smart enough to uh, uh, to to get employment, and. That just, you know, that just made no sense to me, because um, like, you know, I don't know, like, what kind of jobs are they envisioning in the future that require someone to be a super genius to to do? You know, uh, most people, you know, most jobs don't require that much intelligence. You know, like, yeah, uh, that is not, you know, and, and yeah, and like, there's nothing in our. I feel like that, you know, there's really nothing in our society which really indicates that. That the smartest people are the ones who are the richest or the most successful, um, uh, yeah. Like, I don't, I, I don't, I don't, I don't see any any evidence of that. Uh, so, so I, I just started thinking about like, yeah, why is it that? Where does this idea come from that people keep thinking like, well, you know, eventually, 
yeah, the the rich they'll they'll buy enhancements for their kids, and then we we won't have a chance. We won't be able to compete with them. And it's like that is not the reason you can't compete with them. It's you know, uh, you know, yeah, we will we you know we will not be able to compete with the children of the rich. But it's not because they're going to be super smart. Um, you know, they you know. So that was that was that was the inspiration for that. Okay, I think uh, I think that's it. Thank you for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.